Good morning. Today we have two Bible readings. Our first is from 1 Samuel, chapter 5, verses 1 to 12. After the Philistines had captured the Ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then they carried the Ark into Dagon's temple and sat it beside Dagon. When the people of Ashton rose early the next day, there was Dagon, fallen on his face on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. They took Dagon and put him in the back of his palace. But the following morning when they rose, there was Dagon, fallen on his face on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. His head and hands had been broken off and they were lying on the threshold. Only his body remained. That is why to this day neither the priest of the dragon, Dagon, nor any others who enter Dagon's temple at Ashton step on the threshold. The Lord's hand was heavy on the people of Ashton and its vicinity. He brought devastation on them and afflicted them with tumors. When the people of Ashton saw that what was happening, they said, the ark of God of Israel must not stay here with us because his hand is heavy on us and on Dagon our God. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and asked them, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, have the ark of the God of Israel moved to Gath. So they moved the ark of the God of Israel. But after they moved it, the Lord's hand was against the city, throwing it into a great panic. He afflicted the people of the city, both young and old, with an outbreak of tumors. So they sent the ark of the God of Ekron. As the ark of God was entering Akron, the people of Akron cried out, they have brought the ark of the God of Israel around to us to kill us and our people. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and said, send the ark of the God of Israel away. Let it go back to its own, own place or it will kill us and our people. For death had filled the city with panic. God's hand was very heavy on it. Those who did not die were afflicted with tumors and the outcry of the city went up to heaven. Our second Bible reading is from 1 Corinthians, chapter 1, verses 18 to 31. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since, in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, for the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were, you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standard. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. 
Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Thank you. Thank you, Noel. Uh, well, welcome again. Good morning. My name is Jonathan. If we haven't had a chance to meet, I'd love to see you after the service, get to know you a little bit, hear your story, hear what God's been doing in your life. Uh, I encourage you, if you have a Bible, open it now to 1 Samuel chapter 5, where you can turn there in your, uh, on your smartphone, smart device. We are continuing uh, to follow the story of God's people through the Old Testament. <clears throat> Just by way of reminder, uh, we're looking at this story and we're trying to ascertain or what, what is our kind of baseline theology? What's our narrative about God? The reality is what you believe about something or someone has a big impact on how you relate to them. Think about your boss. By now you've probably developed a way of thinking about how they work and who they are and what they value and it impacts your relationship with that person. Think about your spouse. You see, we go through life and we build these narratives. We also have a narrative about God and this, this text of 1 Samuel gives us an opportunity to examine what's our narrative about God and what he is like. We're also looking through this book because we want to understand if there is a goodness to life, if there is, if there is favor, if there's something sweet and meaningful and important in life, we want to know where it is and how to find it. We're not sitting here saying that everything that goes on in this world is simply bliss and delightful. The third reason we're looking at this book is because human beings from time uh, memorial have, have often grabbed for control or for power when they don't feel settled, when they don't feel secure. And so a book like this helps us orient ourselves to this thing called power. But ultimately why we're looking at this book is we want to understand the sweetness of Jesus. We want to understand how does Jesus fit into this picture. This book is written before Jesus came, but it is a book that's about Jesus. And I trust that as we go through this book, you will learn to savor who he is and what it means to know him. So it's a bit of a refresher as to why we're, why we're going through this book. Uh, this message I've titled The Weight of Glory. Uh, I'm not referring it to it the way C.S. Lewis is, um, but that is a great essay. If you have a chance, uh, read C.S. Lewis's essay called The Weight of Glory. Um, but that's not, not exactly where we're going here. Maybe tangentially, you can tell me after the service. Uh, the big question today is, if there's one God, why don't more people worship him? Have you ever asked this? Like, if we believe this God is all-powerful, if we believe he's like the creator of everything, if we think his word is what abides and what, what is true and what goes forward, then why aren't more people worshiping him? Like, where do all these other gods come from? Where do all these other religions come from? Where, where do all these other ways of life come from? And I, I could have put this as well, but like, if this God is all-powerful, and if there is one God, then like, why do the people who worship this God don't do the things that he says? <laughs> have you ever found yourself asking this question? This, this passage kind of broaches that topic, I'll just say this. Um, 
there's many ways we could try to answer this question, but the answer that I think this text gives us is this. The reason is because worshiping a false god will keep you from knowing the living one. That's why. More people aren't worshiping the one God, the true God, the living God, the knowing God, because if you're stuck worshiping something that's not a God, if you are giving yourself, if you are bowing your life, if you are, if you are bending over to accommodate something, if you're divesting your heart, your resources, your passion, your mind, your intellect, if you're investing your being in something that is not the true divine being, then that's going to keep you from knowing him. That's what this text says. The outline today is uh, it's fairly straightforward. This passage in 1 Samuel 5, it, it describes God's self-sufficient supremacy over false gods, and it does it really in two acts. One's a comedy and one's a tragedy. Uh, comedy is a story, and don't take this to your English teacher or to your, you know, or your, uh, your literary person. This is a very layman's definition. Uh, a comedy is a story that starts sad and ends happy. A tragedy is a story that starts happy and ends sad. So in, 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 in the first part of this story, even though we're following the same Ark of the Covenant, in the first part of this story, it's a comedy. If you're reading this as an Israelite, it's, it's hilarious. It literally is meant, it's written to make you laugh. But the end of the story is, is not funny, really, at all. I think it's actually quite tragic, but we'll get to that later. The two scenes or the two acts in this chapter, verses 1 to 5, it's God among the idols right? And the second one is slightly different. It's God among the idolaters or the ones who worship idols. If that terminology feels foreign to you or strange to you, I would say the part one is about God among the false gods and part two is about God among the people who worship the false gods. So that's where we're going today. Would you bow your heads as we open God's word together. Father in heaven, thank you for this time that we have in the scriptures this morning. Thank you for your Holy Spirit who has promised to lead us into all truth. Lord, we are people who get mixed up so easily. And we know that the God of this world, Lord, your adversary, the devil, blinds the minds and blinds the eyes of people that they would not see you or understand who you are. But Father, we pray today that you would uh, heal us of any blindness that we might have, that you would allow our spiritual eyes to focus and to see you for who you are. For it's there, Lord, that I believe that we begin to know ourselves and to know this world. Thank you, God, that you are with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Part one, God among the idols. Follow with me as I read verses one to five. After the Philistines had captured the ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Now, if you're just joining us this week, I'm going to give you a quick 30-second recap. Last week, the Israelites, the people of God, they had went out to fight against their enemies. 
and they suffered a defeat. 4,000 people died. The leaders of the people, their elders got together and they said, why did we lose? Why did God defeat us? Which was correct. But the problem was they answered the question too quickly. Somebody had a bright idea and said, you know why? It's because we didn't have the Ark of God with us while we were fighting. The Ark of God or the Ark of the Covenant, made famous in our day by Raiders of the Lost Ark from the early 1980s. Uh, the Ark of the Covenant was a box that carried the uh, special items that God had given to his people while he was in process of bringing them out of Egypt. It, carried, it, it contained the, uh, the stone tablets that, that, that had the Ten Commandments. It contained the jar of manna, which God used to feed his people in the wilderness. And it contained the rod of Aaron, the staff that had budded, that showed God chose, God's chosen priest or leader over his people. On top of the box was something called the, the mercy seat or the atonement cover. And that was the place where they would put the blood of the sacrifice. And the idea was that once a year, God would meet them in that place. So it's a very special box. It wasn't just, you know, your grandma's hope chest or something like that, right? This is a really special, special thing. So they decided the reason we lost is because we didn't bring it into battle. Well, that wasn't the right solution. They brought the ark into the battle. They lost the battle even worse this time. Not only 4,000 died, but 30,000 died. And they took the Ark of the Covenant. They took the, the Lord's Ark. So here is God's holy, special sign of his covenant with his people. It's in a foreign hand. They took... They took it, and then verse 2, the Philistines take it. Then they carried the ark into Dagon's temple and set it beside Dagon. Now, Dagon was the deity that they worshipped. If you follow the, their mythology, uh, one reading of it understands that Dagon is kind of like the dad of Baal. So if you're used to reading the prophets and you read about Baal, uh, Dagon's like the father of Baal. And most scholars generally speculate that, that this God is a God who presided over uh, the, the fruitfulness of the land, the storm God, the rain God who brought, who brought the crops. So you can imagine why it's an important God, right? Uh, this, this, this land was prone to famine, and if you are a people and you don't have bread, you don't have food, you're going to pray to the storm God to give you rain. So there's a temple in Ashdod for this God. The God's name is Dagon. They take the Ark of the Covenant, they take this sign of God, of Yahweh's relationship with the people of Israel, and they put it next to their idol. Now, we all see what's going on here, right? They're like, our God beat your God, and so we're going to take your God's special thing, and we're going to stick it in the house of our God. Nah, 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 right? We win, you lose, your God is weak. And... So they just set it next to Dagon like it's a trophy, like it's a token of their, of their victory. And then look what happens. They set it beside Dagon. Verse 3, when the people of Ashdod rose early the next morning, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. <laughs> they set the ark of God beside the idol. And the idol falls face down in a worshiping posture before the ark of God. <laughs> we, brought our, your, we brought our little trophy in. 
to our victorious God and we wake up the next morning and our God's face down in front of the trophy. Now, lest they thought this was weird and some sort of strange earthquake happened in the night, somebody's, you know, doing funny things. They read it again. They, they took Dagon and put him back in his place. Oh, dripping with irony. <laughs> read it again. They took Dagon and put him back in his place. Can I just tell you, if you have to pick your God up and put him back where he was, is he really worthy of being your God? Well, let's, let's see what happens. Verse 4, but the, morning, the following morning when they rose, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. Here he is, same thing, next morning. His head and his hands had been broken off and were lying in the threshold and only his body remained. The head and the hands were, were, were symbols of power, right? Because the head, the brain, the mind, the source of communicating, the hands, the sources of doing, their God couldn't speak and their God couldn't do anything. That's the picture. And you're meant to have that picture of this headless and handless God while the heavy hand of God is falling on the Philistines in verses 6 to 12. Keep that in mind. So after the first night, their God is, is falling in a, in a worship position before Yahweh. After the second night, he's lost his head in his hands and he's falling in the worship position again. And, and what I can assume is only, uh, 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 again, more comedy, verse 5, that is why to this day neither the priests of Dagon nor any others who enter Dagon's temple at Ashdod step on the threshold. Our God fell over there and his hands broke off there and his heads broke off there. And so now we don't step on the threshold. We step over the threshold. And so anytime anyone goes to worship Dagon, anyone goes into that, into that place, the priests who are there constantly, they step over the threshold. Again, the writer is putting it right in front of us to say, if you, if you have to make accommodations and allowances, if you've got to step over your God's failure on your way to worship that God, should you really be worshiping that God? It's comedy. Their idol bows before Yahweh, and then he crumbles before Yahweh. And the message to the Israelites and the message to all of God's people everywhere is God can take care of himself. Pastor Eddie had a great insight and sermon in scripture this week. The Israelites took up sword and shield and archer, and they go to fight the Philistines. And they lose. Here is God with no human being there to defend him, with no armor, with no nothing. It's a box. <laughs> and he is victorious. God can take care of himself. I really like the way Dale Ralph Davis put this. Don't begin to think that God needs you to support and carry him. 
if any carrying is to be done, he will carry you. Oh, brothers and sisters, this is good news, isn't it? This is great news. We, we don't worship Jesus because he needs it. We don't, we don't follow Christ because, well, you know, if, if, if somehow I don't do my little bit, if I, if, if I don't put my energy and my effort in, into Christ, then you know he's going he's gonna to fall down. He's going he's gonna to waver. Now, should we give ourselves to Christ? Should we put all our heart, soul, and mind into loving God and to, and to loving our Savior? Absolutely, but don't get it twisted. It's not because he needs it. We don't prop our God up. He doesn't fall down and we put him back on the shelf where he was. If there's anyone who's doing that, he's doing that for us. Listen to Davis. Yahweh intends for his people to think and not merely to laugh. He intends that they realize, unlike a battered Dagon, that Yahweh doesn't have to have someone come and set him up again. He can fight the Philistines by himself. He doesn't need his people to cheer him on. He will bring back his ark all by himself. And so is the church as we engage in a public dialogue and a public debate with a society that wants to take things away and to, and to rubbish things that God calls sacred. As we live in a society that, that uses the name of Jesus like a swear word or a curse word, we're in this really tricky space. Because on the one hand, we never stand for those things and we would never vocalize our support for those things. But on the other hand, the way I see some Christians reacting to the way things are happening in the world, you would think they thought their God was going to fall. You would think they were acting like God had somehow fallen asleep at the switch. As if he is not able to defend himself. As if we need to rally the grassroots of support, political, social, and otherwise. Now again, it's not saying we can't take a stand. We do take a stand, but let's be careful of swinging too far the other way and saying, well... Isn't God grateful that he has me? <laughs> he doesn't need you. He doesn't. He doesn't need me. He wants you. And he wants me. Because he loves you because he loves me. Comedy turns to tragedy, verses 6 to 12. Here we see that as the ark of God is taking a victory tour of sorts through Philistine territory, the hand of the Lord is falling heavy on the Philistines. And that's code language if you read the Old Testament. That's, that phrase comes up in the land of Egypt. When the people are in Egypt... 
and Pharaoh is not letting them go to worship their God, the hand of the Lord begins to fall heavy. So if you're someone who reads your Old Testament, if you're an Israelite, this language should sound familiar. It's the language of affliction. It's the language of God bringing judgment, painful judgment, horrible judgment, on a people to get their attention, to get them to reorient how they think about him. Look what happens. Verse 6, the Lord's hand was heavy on the people of Ashdod and its vicinity. He brought devastation on them and afflicted them with tumors. When the people of Ashdod saw what was happening, they said, the ark of the God of Israel must not stay here with us because his hand is heavy on us and on Dagon, our God. If you follow the verbs associated with the ark, the ark goes from being captured to being taken, to being set beside, to being moved, and finally to being returned. <laughs> it's, it's as if you can follow the slow awakening of the Philistines and the realization that they really have no business holding on to this sign of God's covenant. So, a very important thing happens in verse 8. They called together all the rulers of the Philistines and asked them, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? Here we go. There's a Philistine caucus or a congress. They get the leaders together. Now, the Philistine lands had five major cities. So, these are uh, sort of the heads of those five cities. They come together, and again, just like the Israelites did, they asked the right question. What should we do with the ark of the God of Israel? That's a great question. What should we do with it? Unfortunately, they don't, have the, they don't give the right answer. They answered, have the ark of God of Israel moved to Gath. If you, if you take a, sort of a more wooden translation, to Gath. <laughs> get it to Gath is what they're saying. Not here, get it to Gath. Now, I should have had a map up for you. I apologize. I don't have a map for you this morning. If you're one of those old school people who has a, a physical Bible and there's maps in the back, this is a great time to look at the maps. But if you looked at the map, you would see that eventually what they're doing is Ashdod was in the lower, let's put it this way, north, south, east, west, in the southwest corner of their territory. It was farthest from Jerusalem. And from here, the ark, they begin to send the ark of God closer and closer to Jerusalem. Now, we're not told why. But given our understanding of how people viewed their deities as territorial, it strikes me as plausible that the Philistines here might be thinking, this God is away from his home. We can't put him in Dagon's home. He wants to be in his home. And so they begin to send the ark of God closer and closer to Jerusalem. That's the only thing I can think of as to why they would say they would send it to Gath. So they send it to Gath. And look what happens. Verse 9, after they moved it, the Lord's hand was against that city, throwing it into a great panic. He afflicted the people of the city, both young and old, with an outbreak of tumors. Move it to Gath, same thing's happening. We must not have sent it close enough. <laughs> so then they send it to Ekron. Now what's interesting here, verse 10, as they send the ark to Ekron, Notice here, the people get wind of what's happening. As the ark of God is entering Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, 
Now, this is the people now. This is, your, this is Ma and Pa in the street, right? This is, this is, you know, Uncle Joe, right, who lives three doors down, right? This is everyone's, everyone in the community has got out in front of this, and they're saying, hey, they're bringing the Ark of God of Israel here. They're trying to kill us. <laughs> we don't want this thing. Verse 11, so they called together the rulers of the Philistines again, and they said, send the ark of the God of Israel away. Let it go back to its own place, or it will kill us and our people. The reason is here, for death had filled the city with panic. God's hand was very heavy on it. Those who did not die were afflicted with tumors, and the outcry of the city went up to heaven. What's going on here? The people are feeling the affliction of God and they're saying, we have to get him away. We have to move him on. Now there's no doubt that they were being afflicted. There's no doubt that they were feeling the weight of his hand and his presence. But the mistake that they make is the mistake a lot of people make today, which is to say, we are going to push God farther out of our lives. God's presence here feels heavy. I'm not in right relationship with God. So the thing I need to do is to move him away. I need to move him on. I need to get, not go to church. I need to not read my Bible. I need to not pray. I need to not do these things. And they just try to move him out. If I could just get some distance from God. God was using the affliction to say, I'm near and it's not going well with you. That means we are not on right terms. Does that make sense? It was an opportunity that the Philistines had to recognize that they were not cool with God. They had a chance to see what had happened to their idol, Dagon. They had a chance to see that actually the things that they were worshiping weren't really gods at all. And to me, why it's so tragic is they send their cries to heaven and their cries are heard. God hears their affliction. So why are there still priests to Dagon? Why as of 50 BC do we still have evidence that there is worship of this false god going on in Ashdod? They missed the opportunity. They didn't interpret the affliction properly. They still held to this view that, that God was localized, that there wasn't some supreme being. And whether it's because it would have been too hard to change religions or change cultures or to, or, or to change the way they practice or way they worship, or whether it's because they didn't have enough understanding, whatever it was, note here, it's not that God didn't hear them. He heard their pain. He heard their affliction. The cries went up to heaven. God cared about them. But as the centuries go by, they didn't seek him. It's very sad. I want to finish with this. Do I believe that God holds all the power? Do I believe that favor is found in worshiping God? You see, we might not have little stone statues or things that we sort of prop up or 
You might not, but maybe, maybe you do, I don't know. I'm not trying to presume that I know everyone's personal spiritual practice. But there are things that we believe really hold the power. And so the question is, where do you think the true power lies? Where is the weight of glory in this universe? Is it with Yahweh? Is it with the God of the Bible? Is it with Jesus Christ? Is that where God has invested his glory? If you want to know where favor is, favor is found in being in right relationship with God and worshiping him. And that's what we celebrated this morning at the communion table. That's where the favor is. That's where the good life is. And when you actually are in right relationship with this God, when you actually can come and have communion with him, when you can have fellowship with him, you can pray to him and talk to him and take your cares to him and he will defend you and love you and support you. That's where the favor is. It's not in having stuff or in having control or in having security in this life. That's not where the favor is. The favor is in knowing God and worshiping him. There's a warning here. And we need to ask ourselves the question, where do we turn when we feel helpless? So I thought back over the course of my life and I asked myself the question, Jonathan, where do you turn when you feel helpless? I came up with a number of answers. I know I've turned to my performance. Do I feel like I've been successful? I know I've turned to relationships. Do the people that I admire love me and think I'm worthy? I know I've turned to professionals and people in white coats and I've said, you know, those are the people who really hold the understanding and the power. I've turned to my own inner monologue and I said, well, as long as I believe what I say about myself. These are all places I've looked for when I felt helpless. I could go on and on. Where do you go when you feel helpless? I want to share with you a prayer that I came across this week, which I thought was absolutely beautiful. It's a prayer from Henry Nouwen. It's such an honest prayer. Maybe it's a prayer you need to pray. I know it's a prayer I needed to pray. Dear God, I'm so afraid to open my clenched fists. Who will I be when I have nothing left to hold on to? Who will I be when I stand before you with empty hands? Please help me to gradually open my hands and to discover that I'm not what I own but what you want to give me. And what you want to give me is love. Unconditional, everlasting love. Amen. I love that prayer. Because he describes so well our human instinct, which is, I just got to grab and I got to hold it tight and I got to hold it with both hands and I'm going to hold on for dear life. And I think if I let go of this thing, well, then suddenly, who, who will I be? I want to ask you a question. Is there anything you're holding on to so tightly that if you let go of it, you wouldn't know who you were? 
Is there anything that you're holding on so tightly to that if you let go of it, you knew you would be exposed before God? It's a scary thought, isn't it? To be empty-handed. To not have anything. To be absolutely stripped. And just you. Before an all-knowing, all-powerful creator. The cross is God's sign to you that it's okay to come. That he wants to give you love. You see, the Philistines, they were hurting, but as soon as they got relief from their hurt, they went back to holding on to the things that weren't worth holding on to. Come on in, kids. Great to see you. Maybe you need to take a moment this week to pray that prayer. But finally, Jesus bore the weight of God's glory so that he could share it with us forever. We're going to finish by inviting you to turn to Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 and 14, or flick there in your Bible. <laughs> As I ask myself, how do I read this story from the perspective of someone in the New Testament, someone living under the reign of Jesus? And I found that this passage was helpful in bringing it into words. Colossians chapter 1, sorry, chapter 2, verses 13 to 15. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, in other words, when you had nothing, <laughs> God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. What, a, what good news that is. The written record of everything you've done wrong, are doing wrong, and will do wrong. The written record of that. Pinned to the cross with a nail. Pinned through the body of Jesus. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. In verse 15, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. You see, the Philistines weren't the only ones who thought they could somehow take God captive. The devil himself... he had triumphed as the son of God was hoisted up as his life taken away as he's dead in the tomb <laughs> the devil has his little trophy there it is the cross but God says that little trophy that you think you have that is the means by which I will make a public spectacle of you.
And so to this day, people wear crosses around their neck, not showing, not showing the fact that, wow, God took a hit that day, but showing that God triumphed. May you take heart in the triumph of God. Jesus bore the, the full weight of God's heavy hand so that you could be led into his glory. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, thank you for the cross. Thank you for Jesus. May we walk with him. May we be clothed in him. And may we show you honor and glory, for you are worthy of our worship. In Jesus' name, amen.